Hey, I've got, I've got a praise report for all of you. Uh, this past week, some awesome things happened, and I hear about these things, and then I get to come and tell you about them um, so, that, so that everybody gets to celebrate and praise the Lord with me. But do you know, in our partnership with an organization called CSP, we uh, are helping our students to reach their high schools with the gospel. So um, high schoolers have to initiate uh, events in their school. We can't go to the high school and be like, we'd love to have an event where we tell people about Jesus. The high schoolers have to initiate that. And this past week, through this partnership with CSP, there were rallies in the school at four high schools, Oak Lawn, Shepherd, uh, Fenton, and Wheaton North High School, six rallies in four schools, and a thousand students heard the gospel in their schools last week. We've got pictures. Here's some pictures. But uh, these schools um, know that, you know, students have liberty and freedom so they can form clubs. I think we've got pictures. We're going to show the pictures. Pictures are coming. There we go. So there's Fenton High School. And that's William Green, former first-round draft pick for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, played several years. He's a running back. Talking about how the NFL didn't make all of his dreams come true. Jesus did. And Christ is his Savior. So here's the next one. Uh, this one's at Oaklawn High School. I spoke on Wednesday. William spoke on Thursday. Pastor Jeremy spoke on Friday. Uh, then here's the next one. This is at Shepherd High School. And these are student-initiated. They invite anybody to come. It's not by compulsion. And, and then, uh, so overall, um, a thousand students heard the gospel this last, week, this last week. Let's not let that get old. I'm blown away that our students, our high schoolers, would take such initiative to make this happen. And they're right now working to get a rally at Stag, and I think another one at Richard. So pray for them, pray to encourage them, and um, as we go into God's Word together, let's take a moment right now just to thank the Lord, and uh, let's tell Him how grateful we are for what He's doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that You are at work in the hearts of our students. We just ask You to continue to go to work in the high schools in the area. Thank you that we live in this free country where our students are able to share their faith without harassment, without any obstacle being placed in front of them. We ask that the seeds that were planted in the hearts of students, atheist students, agnostic students, Muslim students, that those would grow and bear fruit, that you would save souls forever through these outreach events. We pray for the schools that are going to have outreaches coming up. May they be well attended and may the response be something that only you can generate. Thank you, Lord. Continue to bless our uh, pillar of evangelism at our church. We just ask that the gospel would be shared boldly, shared with others who need to hear it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. Last week, I preached a whole sermon on half a verse. This week, you're going to get a whole sermon on the other half of the verse. Three words and a feature-length presentation. How about that? The Lord is challenging us to pursue some things as a congregation. Remember, the theme of 1 Timothy is the Apostle Paul talking to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus. The purpose is that we as Christians must embrace and defend sound doctrine and true discipleship in the church. This book is aimed in the church. All right, The laser sight floating around where this book is aimed to make an impact is in this church. And, and God wants us to embrace it and to defend it. Sound doctrine, true discipleship. So in chapter 6, verse 11, uh, we remember that last week it says, But as for you, O man of God, 
flee these things. We're running away from sin faster than we'd run away from a starving grizzly bear. Pursue, so now we're running towards some things. Pursue, and here's a review, righteousness, godliness, and faith. You can write that down. We're pursuing, chasing righteousness, godliness, and faith. You can fill that in in your bulletin. That was last week's sermon. And then there's some new things to pursue, and the first one on the list this week is love. So chase, righteousness, what's right in God's sight, godliness, the display on the outside of fearful reverence of God, and faith, uh, which is following the Lord and trusting Him while, uh, until it becomes sight. And now, number one, write this down. What are we chasing this week? Chase love. Chase love. Uh, the context of this book is there were false teachers in the church who were dividing up the congregation. They were bringing a different gospel and they were bringing a different plan of discipleship. They were siphoning off God's people, drawing followers to themselves and stealing love. Uh, Stealing love from fellow Christians and from God because they wanted it for themselves from their own followers. They were using a different gospel to make this happen, but they were trying to get love and hoard it all for themselves through division. So, here comes the truth. The Apostle Paul says, Timothy, you and your people chase, pursue love. Now, it's important that you understand you can't obey this command alone. This is not a solitary command for you to get all alone and conjure up some feelings towards those people who are the hardest to love in your life. All right, chasing love doesn't mean you're supposed to, you know, get all alone and start thinking about your boyfriend and how awesome he is and just be filled with love. Be like, oh, he's all that. I love him. I love him. This is not a solitary virtue this week. All right, when it says chase love, it's a group project. You can't do this without the people who are around you. He wants us to chase love together. So look to your left. Who's sitting there? Go on, look. Look to your right. Who's over there? Do you know that person? Look behind you. Who's sitting behind you? Uh Uh-oh, did you pick the wrong spot to sit? (laughs) You can't obey these verses without the people sitting around you. He wants us as a church to pursue love in the family of God. To chase it. To pursue it. Now, if you're honest, and I try and be honest as I'm preaching to you, uh, it's a lot better to be receiving love from others than it is to have to give it away. Wouldn't you agree that it's a lot better to let other people love you? It feels so good when other people think of you and give you gifts and wrap an arm around you and say you're going to make it through this. Like getting love, we love that. Giving it away, not so easy. Um, Kids love parades. Am I right? Do your kids love parades? Why do kids love parades? One word, candy. Kids love parades because kids love candy. They go to the parade, they get the candy, they love the candy. Uh, you know what's really funny is this, uh, just yesterday, my son and my two daughters had their uh, baseball and softball kickoff parade. All right? Bless you? What was that? <laughs> All right. Let's not be shouting out here. So we had our baseball and our softball kickoff parades yesterday. And you know what's funny is to watch a kid get into a parade. Do you know Why? Because they have to throw candy away. They can't hoard it. They have to give it away. So I actually captured video of my kids put in this very real moral predicament where they have a huge bag of candy and they have to throw it to other people. Check it out. 
What happens here is the kids throw it and then they go and pick it up. Watch this kid coming. He's got a big bag, but he's not done. He's picking more up. Jared, aren't you supposed to be helping other children get happy? I am. I'm happy. See? Here's the dilemma. They start with a big bag of candy. They start walking. They know they're supposed to throw it away, so they don't want to. So some of them, you know, the public school kids, they reach for a handful. They just start shoving it in their pockets right away. They don't even care. I'm just kidding. I went to public school. Relax. The religious kids, you know, they've got to find a way around this rule. So what they do is uh, they, they, you know, throw it. But once it hits the ground, technicality, it's already been thrown. So they can go and pick it up, and then they can put it back in their pocket. They even found another way around the rule that they have to throw it. They started throwing it to each other. So one of them's holding the hat out. The other one throws his candy, and then it goes from the hat into the pocket. Why? Because parades are all about getting candy. What's with this giving it to other people business? That's not what parades are for. Now, I think as grown-ups, we admit that we are placed in that same moral dilemma regularly. We prefer to have love thrown at us. Am I right? We prefer not to have to throw it away to other people. We, we kind of internally feel like love is this non-renewable resource. And if we're not careful, then if we throw too much of it away, we're not going to have any left and we're going to get taken advantage of. We're the only ones giving it away, then we're going to be taken advantage of. We're going to be walked over like doormats. So we've got to be careful. We've got to ration how much of it we give away. We've got to be real careful to make sure there's a steady stream of it coming in so that that, you know, balance, the love keeps coming. Overall, in the flesh, I think it's fair to say that we prefer to get more love than we give. But that's not the way of God. That's not the way of God. God wants us to learn to give Christian love to those in the church around us. He wants us to learn how to take initiative. And we don't have to fear that we will ever run out or somehow create this deficit where we won't have any more. Um, Why? Because love comes from God's nature. So because love comes from God's nature, it's an eternally renewable resource. It will never, ever, ever run out. So check this out. 1 John 4, 8 says this. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John, in 1 John, has a habit of creating these black and white, either-or scenarios. Um, And he says here, if you don't love, flat out, you don't know God, because God is love. No love, no God. Wow. Love is the truest expression of God's nature. In 1 John 4, 9, it talks about how Christ was the supreme display of God's love. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son in the world so that we might live through him. How did God show his love for us? He was willing to give his son, his only son, whom he loved. And that is the greatest display of love anyone has ever given anyone in history. God's nature is love, and he has given us an expression of love in sending his son. Because he has poured out such eternal supreme love, there'll never be a lack when we get it from God. The problem comes when we try and get love from someone other than God. When we place another person in the position where they are supposed to satisfy us and our feelings of self-worth and our feelings of, of being loved and appreciated. No one can ever do that for us but God. Once God fills you up, once you know and rely on the love God has for you, then you don't have to walk around like a love hoarder. 
then you don't have to just take, take, take from everyone. Take it from my parents. Take it from my siblings. Take it from my co-worker. I'm not giving any of it away. My big bag. Once God fills you up with his love, you no longer need to hoard it anymore. You're free to give it away. And we're commanded to give it away. I love what Tim Keller says about the love of Christ. Tim says, we're so evil, Jesus had to die for us. We're so lost, nothing less than the death of the divine Son of God could save us. But we're so loved that he was willing to die for us. So the gospel humbles us to the dust and at the very same time exalts us to the heavens. Get this, he saw your heart to the bottom and loved you to the skies. Wow. The fact that he would tell us the truth about how unlovable we are. When, sometimes when, when you hear God loves us, God loves the world, the reaction is, well, of course he does. What's well, not to like? As if we are these innately lovable beings. As if the world is full of care bears who do nothing but shoot rainbows from our furry bellies at one another, nation to nation. What world do you live in? We are not innately lovable. We're like Pepe Le Pew meets a porcupine meets a T-Rex. So when God loves us, it's the fact that we're not lovable that makes that love truly amazing. And when you're face to face with someone who's hard to love, that's a chance for you to be like Christ. Christ's love is the power and the pattern for our love. It's the power for our love because it breaks our own sin, it breaks our own selfishness. But it's the pattern for our love, meaning Christ shows us what sacrifice and true devotion to God looks like. So when we look at Christ, we see the power, our only hope of becoming a loving person. We see the pattern. This is our only example of true selfless love in all of history. And we must love. If we don't become a loving church, we will become a sinful church. Um, love does something to sin in your home, in your marriage. Love does something to sin in your family, at work. Love does something to sin in this church. Do you know that? Choosing to love does something to sin. Do you know what it does? It strips sin of all of its power. Choosing not to love empowers sin, makes sin go all hulk when we choose not to love. So we have to choose to love and not choose to sin. Do you remember Superman? And I'm not talking about this new Superman mumbo-jumbo that's coming out. The new, they released a little trailer with new Superman. He's not Superman. You want to see real Superman? This is real Superman. From my generation, that's what Superman looks like. Tights, and then you've got the cape, and that's the way that he should look. All right? And then you got Lex Luthor there, and here, this is a bad day for Superman, because look at what Lex found. He found out what kryptonite can do. And we all know what kryptonite can do, right? What does it do? Take Superman's power away. We got a picture of kryptonite here. And he's happy because he found out what will take away Superman's power. And here's the next picture. You put this on Superman and he ends up powerless at the bottom of the sea, struggling for his very life. In a sense, love does to sin what kryptonite does to Superman. Love strips sin of all of its power. When you choose to love, you completely disarm sin. And listen, as a church, when we choose to love people who are hard to love, when we choose the way of peace and forgiveness, we are robbing sin of all of its power. But when we choose not to love, when we choose the selfish path, when we choose the harsh path, the unforgiving path, do you know what we're doing? We're letting sin go all hulk. We're letting sin get stronger than ever. We're letting sin become a force of tyranny that will devour us. You have to choose to love. And it's not like you could stay in the middle. We learned from the teachings of Christ last year when we went through the series that if we don't love our enemies, we become our enemies. We'll share in their sin. So we have to chase love together as a church. 
hey, who are you struggling to love in the church? Meaning fellow Christians in this church or in another church, what Christians are you struggling to love? Do you know the love chapter read at many weddings? Love is patient, love is kind. First, have you heard that? 1 Corinthians 13, that, that's not written to lovers. It's written to a church that's having a hard time getting along in the city of Corinth. So, so the loving church is filled with people who are patient, kind, not envious or boastful, not arrogant or rude, not insisting on their own way, not irritable or resentful, not rejoicing in wrongdoing, but with truth. The loving church is filled with people who are bearing all things, believing the best, filled with hope about the future, enduring all things together as a family. And if we aim to truly love others, if we aim to deeply love God, then sin will fail to master us. That's your hope. Fill your marriage with love and sin will fail to master you. Fill, as a parent, your home with love and sin will fail to master you. Fill your church with love and sin will fail to master you. It's our call. We're supposed to rally to love. So we're chasing love, but we're chasing something else. What? Well, write this down. Number two, chase steadfastness. Verse 11, pursue it. Pursue love. Pursue steadfastness. What does steadfastness mean exactly? Well, steadfastness, you've probably heard this word before in a word study, hupomene. It's in that family of words. So hupomene is a compound word in the Greek. Two parts. Remain under. You remain under under what the pressure of a trial the weight of a problem the agony of a conflict hupomene this this word group means to be steadfast to be to persevere to endure to be long suffering uh, there's two elements required to develop this virtue pain and time but we don't like this virtue do we We want God to take pain out of our lives as soon as it comes in. The pain of relational conflict in our marriage comes in. Take it out. We want God to take the pain of physical suffering out of our... As soon as we get the bad health report, we want the next doctor's visit to fix the problem. We want God to do amazing things. We just want him to do them quickly. We want God to write awesome stories. We just want them to be short stories, right? God, write an amazing short story in my life. Maybe an essay. Maybe what's shorter than an essay? God, write a poem in my life, like a God poem. Like, like, or what, like one of the shortest poems is like a haiku. God, just get it over with in like four or five lines and make it awesome, start to finish. You be the hero, but make sure it's short. Those aren't the stories that show off God. Oh, my wife and I got into this knockdown drag out fight. We didn't think we would ever make it, but by, you know, by the time we went to sleep, we'd fixed it all. Glory. It's not a God story. Yeah, a little spat. We want to hear the stories of like 10 years of misery, walking to court to get the papers, God radically intervened, and now we want God to show off in that way, right? So we have to choose steadfastness. We have to understand that God will let hardship stay in your life. That God will swing a wrecking ball through your front window so that he can put an addition on your faith. The pain will serve his purpose. You will have pain, but your pain is now under new management when you're a Christian. Jesus is now the boss, and he's ordering your pain to fulfill his plans in your life. But you have to remain steadfast. You have to stay under the trial. You can write this down. This is something that 
pastors should really tell you that you should hear in the church that the Bible says again and again, just so you're not caught off guard, write this down, your life is going to be really, really hard. Okay, the Bible guarantees that. Jesus said, in this world you will have nothing but Skittles and rainbows, fluffy pets. Is that what he said? Trouble. Jesus said, take up your crossword puzzle and follow me. Wait a minute. No, he didn't. He didn't promise you a life of twiddling your thumbs and doing nothing that requires exertion or patience. He said, take up your cross. That's today like saying, sit down in the electric chair and off we go. Like agonizing, torturous death. Put it on your back and then follow me. He promises you a life of pain and persecution. Your life is going to be really, really hard. Some people expect that if they have enough faith, their life will be pain-free and that's unbiblical. Some preachers get up and promise you health, wealth, prosperity. In the name of Christ, it's as if they're trying to tell you heaven's going to arrive here in this world. That's not going to happen. Uh, This world is going to end in fire. Jesus said people are going to faint with fear as God's wrath is poured out. I mean, this world is not heaven. It's not our home. Your life is going to be really, really hard. And I felt convicted earlier this week. I'm by no means going through a deep valley, a trial, nothing even substantial, but just the overall weight of of life and the pressure and trying to catch up with things that are going on is definitely wearing me out, all right? So I can definitely say that I feel worn out after a season of great exertion, getting into the building and helping to meet all of our new friends and move them on their way in discipleship, trying to hire a new pastor. I, I could definitely say that I feel worn out. But earlier in this week, I feel like God really impressed something onto my heart. See, because I'm longing for, for a season of renewal, refreshment, and uh, in church, in home, with the kids, in every area financially, we long to be out of the pressure, out from under the pressure, right? That's what we long for. But I felt like God was really convicting me and saying, what is it that you really want? Do you really want me to be unnecessary? And in the flash, I kind of felt like, I guess that is what I want. I guess I'm longing for, in every area of my life, for the day to come when God is unnecessary and the problems are gone and the pressure is gone and the challenge is gone. And, and I felt like he was saying, do you really want that? Do you really want me to be unnecessary or do you want me to be supreme? And I would just challenge you to ask yourself that. In your pain, in your suffering, in your trial, are you really longing only for God to become unnecessary or are you yearning for God to become supreme through it all? Do you want Jesus to be unnecessary or do you want Jesus to be supreme? Because if you want him to be supreme, then you say, as long as it takes for my child to come back to the faith, as long as you're supreme in the end. As long as it takes for my marriage to be put back together, as long as you get the glory. As long as it takes for you to strengthen my heart in this area, to bring about financial stability in my life, as long as it takes, Father, as long as Jesus is supreme. You can live in that right now. You don't have to yearn for this future where you're out from under it all. And while you wait for that, you just sink into misery and feel like God isn't with you and can't use you and isn't blessing you. You're no longer waiting for God to do what He's going to do. You're enjoying Him becoming supreme through your suffering. Your life is going to be really, really hard. Desire that Jesus would become supreme through it all. Write this down. Therefore, you must endure trials, needs, and people. You must endure trials, needs, and people. 
Uh, God will allow these to come into your life and to sit down. We love the stories in the New Testament, right? They threw Peter in jail, and he's sitting in jail. What happens that same night? The angel comes in, kicks the shackles off him, and says, come with me. You're getting out. And then, I don't know if that's how angels talk, all right? Don't make fun of me. Come with me. You're getting out. And then they get out, and Peter's free, and the gates open up, right? We love it when God comes into our prison, into our pain, and immediately gets us out. And he'll do that. But what about in the Old Testament when Joseph was thrown in jail? And you know what the Bible says? The Lord was with him. So what happens when God walks into our jail cell and sits down and stays a while and sits there for years in the jail with Joseph? You see, he does both. He sustains us in the trial and periodically he gets us out of the trial. But we have to endure trials. A trial loosely could be a sudden tragedy or a major change at work or an unexpected legal problem, or, or maybe a, your health is failing, and, and it's a trial, and you have to endure. You have to remain under that pressure and not, not bolt, not run, not quit, not lash out. You've got to remain under for God to get you everything that He's working on. Needs would be financial problems, or maybe you, maybe you need answers to your health crisis. You don't even know what it is, and you need answers. Uh, it's something you, have, you need that you don't have. Maybe you're out of work and you, you have real needs to just make it through the week, but there's needs and you need to endure your needs. And, and then there's people who are the problem. People. You've got to endure difficult people, marital problems and children rising up in rebellion or conflict with someone in the church or outside of the church. And we have to endure these difficult trials, these needs and these people and remain under so that we can grow steadfastness. I remember... I think it was at the Museum of Science and Industry reading about how NASA got the first astronauts ready for space. We've got a picture of an astronaut here just to put that in your mind. But they're preparing to go into orbit and to get them ready, they plunged them into ice water to monitor their pulse and their blood pressure. They had them sit in a spinning centrifuge and they, they kept spinning them and spinning them until they were about to lose it. And They spent two hours in a room heated to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, why would they put these men through such agonizing trials? to get them ready for the rigors of space, right? To toughen them up and get them ready so a better astronaut comes out the other side. My favorite astronaut is Bruce Willis. We'll never forget when he went to space. You remember what happened when he went to space? I mean, he had the whole asteroid blowing up under his feet, and then he had mutiny on his hands, and then the government intervened, and man! But he was tough because he grew up on an oil rig, right? Don't laugh at my hero. Hey, God's going to toughen you up. God's not going to coddle you. He's not going to shield you from a world that's hostile towards Him. He'll strengthen you. Uh, He'll develop you so that you're able to endure the rigors of this world, which is not your home. Choose steadfastness. Chase it. You know why it's so hard to choose steadfastness? It's because uh, Satan lies to you about your future. See, Satan is going to tell you false things about how this is going to end. Um, Satan is very good at writing bad endings to God's stories in your heart before they happen. I've got to admit, I'm really good in my own heart at fretting and worrying as a God's story plays out. I'm a really skilled author of bad endings to God's stories. Oh, I know how this is going to end. It's going really well, but then God's going to step away and it's all going to fall apart. It's going to end in ruin. And I'm really good at that. I don't know if you are. If you need a bad ending to your story, I'll write you one. 
before it's done. I'll tell you all. We lack faith. Satan is a masterful author, and he will write terrible endings to your story in your heart before they even happen. When we lose hope, when, you're, when your brother or sister in Christ loses hope, you know what you have to do? It's like you've got to get into a DeLorean with them and go to the future with them and, and point them all around and say, hey, listen, God made some promises about this place, and he's going to be faithful. Maybe you need to hear that. Maybe you are afraid God is going to fumble your future. And he's made promises to you about your future, and Satan is lying to you about your future. Why would you believe him? Believe God's truth. Then you can endure trials when you know that every trial has an expiration date. God's promise that he will work it out for good, so you get to trust him on the way. Chase steadfastness. Remain under the trial. Why? Your life's going to be really hard. You've got to endure. And then write this down. So embrace both the crisis and the process. Uh, We lose faith that God can use us. We lose faith that God can sustain us. We lose faith that God can protect us. And then we complain because we think God could be doing a far better job of directing our affairs. When we complain during a trial, it's fundamentally a protest against God's sovereignty. All right. When we complain, when we wallow in self-pity during a trial, we're fundamentally finding passive-aggressive ways to tell God we're not at all happy about how he's ruling our lives. Um, I've been there. I've felt that way. I've said those things. Wallowing in self-pity. Uh, why? Because we don't think God is being fair to us. We don't think he's doing a good job. So what do we do? We, we lock up our joy. We take the joy and we lock him up in a closet. Why? Because problems have arrived. We will not be joyful until the problems leave, Lord. And I would just challenge you, if that's what you're doing, if you're locking up your joy until the problems leave and holding your worship hostage, I would just say this. I'd say, let your problems and your joy get freely acquainted. Worship the Lord in your suffering. He will honor it. And understand that there is both the crisis and the process. God will bring a crisis trial into your life where you have to make a decision to honor him in that moment. It comes and it goes. It's quick. You have a chance. You need to take it. But there's also a process. Sometimes God places a person in your life that's not going away. And it's going to take a long time. And one of Satan's best strategies is when God says process, Satan comes along and tries to turn it into a crisis. You better demand God do something right now. And if he doesn't, you better walk and tell him exact crisis. You better create a crisis with God. But God said process. God said it's going to take time. God said I'm not going to get rid of this one quickly. But Satan tries to get you on the crisis path. Then you make ultimatums and God doesn't respond to those. Satan also, when God says crisis, tries to turn it into a process. So if God says This is your chance to do the right thing right now. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Repent and believe Jesus Christ and be saved. What does Satan do when God says crisis? Satan says process. Whoa, 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 slow this down. We don't need to make up our mind today. Let's take time and think this over. See what he does? So when God says crisis, we have to embrace the crisis. When God says process, we have to embrace the process. And if there's a trial that's not going away anytime soon, you need to embrace that and stop turning into crisis moments where you threaten God and hold your worship hostage. God said process. 
Don't lock up your joy. So chase love. Chase steadfastness. Number three, chase gentleness. This is the third trait. Chase gentleness. It says right in there, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness in verse 11. What is gentleness? Gentleness can also be translated meek. And you know Jesus himself said, blessed are the meek. Do you know why? It's a really good ending. Blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. Heaven. Filled with God's glory. All the fullness of his promises for all time. The meek will inherit the earth. So this is a pretty big trait. Gentleness is a big deal. It means measured in force. It means strength in check. Um, it's not a weak virtue. It doesn't mean that you're wimpy. It doesn't mean that you're soft. It doesn't mean that you lack conviction. Meekness actually requires that there be strength there because meekness is strength being restrained. So there has to be power of conviction and then there has to be restraint on that power to create gentleness. Imagine you've got this spectrum of force that you can act with and over here is like extreme red. You're like so strong and direct and convicted and in the face of the other person and and flipping out and then over here is like eh, passive, cool, despondent, no effort, no force, no exertion. Imagine this is the spectrum of expression in your heart. Basically what God is saying is, Christians, right over here is where we're supposed to live. We should demonstrate tremendous restraint with our exertion of force in the relationships in our life. And if we get over here, are there times when we're supposed to peak and redline and rise up? Yeah. One of your kids is in danger. Last thing you should be like is like, ah, whatever. you got to get up there. you got to fight for your marriage. you got to fight for your family. Right? So there's some times God tells his people, hey, where's your zeal? But we don't live over here. We live over here. Jesus was gentle. He displayed that when he rode into Jerusalem on a common animal. He could have come in on a war horse in glory in a chariot. He could have come in by force and taken over the world. But he, he chose to come displaying a restraint of force. He chose to come. He was allowed to suffer and die. He was not weak at any moment. He could have called upon thousands of angels to come. He could have turned everyone who is putting him on this foolish trial, he could have turned him into ladybugs and smushed them under his sandal. He could have done anything. And what he displayed was a restraint of force. That's how he got the throne. He who humbled himself, God exalted him to the highest place. So it's the restraint of force that actually strengthens us in life. God strengthens us as we humble ourselves. This is a problem because many men... Many men wonder, well, what does God want me to be? Does he want me to be the tough guy who tells it like it is? and The, the guy who's strong? And, or does he want me to be the tender guy who's nice? Which is it? Which is it? As if you can't be both. Check, it, check this out. This guy's tough and tender. He's rocking both of them. Look at that. Yeah. I got big muscles and tattoos and I got a little puppy. <laughs> is that what I'm supposed to be? Am I supposed to be... Tough and tender, how can I be both manly and gentle at the same time? Gentleness is not weakness. It's strength restrained. So imagine for a moment Michael Jordan in his prime. No one can stop him. 
If you played Michael Jordan one-on-one at the end of a five-day-long match, the score would be a 1,000 to nothing. You would not score unless he let you score, right? He would mow you down. And he's strong enough to do that. But imagine if he was playing with like a 10-year-old kid. And what's he going to do? Is he going to be like, you know, he's going to let the, oh, you got by me, you know, nice layup. You know, at some point, he might even lift him up, let the kid slam. And does that mean Michael Jordan has suddenly lost his strength and skill? No, he's withholding. He's restraining his skill and his strength. Why? For the good of another. That's a good depiction of meekness. You have strength, you have conviction, you have truth, but you're restraining it for the good of others. This is called gentleness. I found out that in in classical Greek literature, this word for gentleness uh, could have been applied to like a, a, a tame animal versus a wild animal. All right, so here's a picture of a tame animal. This is my dog, Spencer. Tame animal. My daughters dressed him up. They put that shirt on him. He's got a scarf. He's got sunglasses around his neck. He's even got silly bands on his left wrist. He's got a hood. They sprayed him with perfume. It took 30 minutes, and he didn't bite anybody. He just took it because he's a tame, gentle animal. Check this next picture out. This is a wild dog. All right. Now, moms, moms, if you have small children, would you let your child approach and pet that animal? No. It's a wild beast. could tear my child apart, right? I don't know what that thing's going to do. It's got no control over its impulses. All right, go back to the tame animal. Would you let your children pet that animal? Yeah. Go ahead. (laughs) So, spiritually speaking, God needs to tame our wild hearts. He needs to tame our tongue. He needs to tame our temper. He needs to make it so that we're not wild towards each other. Claws and teeth coming out in church meetings and fights breaking out between Christians. We're not, we're not wild towards one another. He needs to teach us to be gentle. If I had to pick just three basic words that could help you gauge how you're doing with gentleness, I'd say, what about this? What about volume? Volume displays a person who's learning gentleness. So, so if you're a shouter, you know, if you picture a volume meter at work or in your home, and down here is like green volume on the soundboard, and then you get louder, it's like yellow, orange, and then bam, you're redlining, you're a shouter. If you're like redlining all the time, shouting, you know, maybe you're not learning gentleness yet. If, if the volume is up constantly with your boss, with your wife, with your kids, like you've got volcanic energy daily, maybe God needs to teach you gentleness. Volume is a good anger or a good measure of gentleness. And the Bible says we're supposed to be slow to anger, each one of us. Maybe you need to ask Jesus to teach you gentleness. What about the next one? Violence is a good indicator of how you're doing it being gentle. People are breakable. People are breakable, fragile. We're supposed to treat them with such consideration, especially those who are younger than us. Uh, The Bible calls you men to treat your wives with great love and tenderness as the weaker partner, meaning physically they don't have the power to stand up to you, so you should never do anything physical towards them. It's criminal. It's sinful. And the violent man is a weak man. The violent man can't control himself. The violent man can't restrain himself, let alone helping others to get to a good place. 
violence is an indication that you lack gentleness. Violence is not an unforgivable sin. If you've struggled with this, you need to come to Christ and you need to say, teach me gentleness, restraint of force. Help me to be like you. I'm picking on the guys here and I think the next word would be more customized for the women, but the next one would be vicious. If you are vicious in the words you say toward fellow Christians, you need to learn gentleness. God needs to tame your tongue. Imagine the spectrum of force that we talked about before. And over here are the cutting, blunt, deeply wounding, selfish words showing no consideration for making peace. Don't, doesn't care. The wreckage left behind after I say what's on my mind. And women in particular know exactly how to slice somebody up with their tongue. And if you haven't learned gentleness to live over here, to live with such carefully chosen words and such such methodically chosen tone and such fear of the Lord in how I say this and when I say this and where I say this, maybe you need to learn gentleness. Maybe God needs to remind you that every careless word will be brought up in the judgment. Did you say this to this person at this time? Oh, I, I don't recall the angels. Pull up the feed there, camera one, uh, you know, November 13, 2003. And whoa, you want to you see another camera angle? We've got a bunch. Okay, moving on to sin number 1,200,395,002. Did you say that? Every careless word will be brought up in judgment. We have to chase gentleness. We can't be vicious. We can't be violent. The volume needs to display that we're learning gentleness. It's about degrees of force. We're supposed to live on the gentle side. Uh, gentleness should be our signature. Proverbs 25.15 says, the gentle tongue breaks the bone. Meaning, the gentle word breaks through the other person's defenses. Don't feel like if you rein your tongue in and learn gentleness, you're not going to be heard. It's not true. You'll actually, your words will be heavier if you show restraint. Sin is not your ally. Love strips sin of its power. As a church, the Bible here is calling us to pick up the pace to pursue after righteousness because sin is trying to catch us. We're supposed to chase love, steadfastness, gentleness. I'm getting ready to run a half marathon, and I'm regretting it terribly. I'm regretting it because it actually takes effort. And, uh, and so what I do is I'll take the dog out for a walk, and I'll, you know, he likes going for a walk. But when I take him out for a run, he really loves that. But the way this works is I get all ready to run, and then I put him on the leash, and then I start to run, and he wants to sprint. He's like, oh, we're going to run? Woo! And then I'm pulled by the leash, and he wants to sprint. And so then I have to slow him down. I'm like, come on, I'm not in that good shape. And then he, he basically turns around and he gives me this look like, oh, we're not running. We're just trotting. And his trot is like my run. I'm like, ooh, ooh. And he's like, come on, keep up, keep up. I feel like this is what God's doing to our church. I think he's saying, pick up the pace. Come on. He's challenging us to pick up the pace in pursuing these virtues. He's He's calling us in our own hearts to embrace these virtues of love, steadfastness, and gentleness, not to wall off our hearts towards them, right, and to grow in sinfulness. So I think based on these virtues, I think something in your heart is probably responding to this challenge, whether it's who is it that you're struggling to love? Maybe God laid somebody on your heart. You know, in this church, in another church, I need to pour out the love for this person, um, 
steadfastness, what is it that God has brought into your life that's creating a need for you to endure, to remain under? Um, Gentleness, who is it that you feel like you're being too harsh or direct? Or who is it that you need to scale that back and show them grace and consideration? Let's take all that to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to grow us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're most most grateful that you would give us eternal love, that you would promise us you will never leave us and never forsake us no matter how sinful or wicked or rebellious we were. Thank you that you've promised to forgive us if we confess our sins to you. What amazing love we know. Yet, we're reluctant to give that same love to other people. Teach us to love Jesus. Teach us as a church to grow in love, to accelerate how loving we are towards others. Uh, Teach us to grow in steadfastness. Lord, and my heart just goes out to those people uh, in this room who are going through deep, dark valleys. They want it over. They want it done. But may they just reaffirm in their own hearts right now that you are good. Your promises are real. We don't want a different God. We don't want a different Bible. We believe that you will use these trials to turn our faith to gold. We believe that. We ask that you would teach us to be gentle, especially when we're at the end of our rope, when we're hurt, when we're angry, when we're offended. Teach us to be gentle and measured in our tone. Help us to be considerate as we know you could have wiped us off the map and thrown us into hell forever and been justified in forever doing away with us, but you were gentle. You came down, Jesus. You blessed children in your arms. You talked to sinful women graciously. You were even patient with the rulers who would execute you. Thank you for your gentleness. May we respond to it by showing it to others. Forgive us for when we're harsh and unforgiving and unpeaceable and inconsiderate. Forgive us for that. Wash us clean. Make us loving. Fill your church with joy through whatever. We pray this in your name. Amen.